If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel, and this week, I'm excited for you to meet Amol Deshpande, co-founder and CEO of Farmers Business Network a global farmer-to-farmer network and ag tech company. FBN is on a mission to power the prosperity of family farmers around the world while working toward a sustainable future. The company supports almost 45,000 farmers responsible for over 80 million acres in U.S., Canada, and Australia. Amol has spent the better part of his career in and around agriculture at startup companies, large companies such as Cargill, and most recently as a partner at Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. Amol has a degree in chemical engineering from the University of Illinois and an MBA from Cornell, where he was a Park Fellow. And with that, let's welcome Amol. Hi, Amol. So excited to have you. I've been personally uh, very, very interested in this category of innovation that you've been focused on. So let's start with the basics. Um, What's FBN in your own words? And take us back to 2014 and that aha moment where you decided to take the leap to go build this. Yeah, thank you. Um, And thank you for having me. If I go back to 2014, uh, the aha moment actually came well before that. I I grew up in Chicago, in the Chicago area. I didn't know anything about farming until when I was in grad school about 20 years ago. And I I went to work on an indoor fish farm growing tilapia indoors. And I sort of fell in love with the industry. So uh, it wasn't an aha moment as much as it was a long buildup through a career of entrepreneurship, then at Cargill, then at Kleiner Perkins, uh, as an investor, and then in 2014, leaving venture capital and saying, okay, the synthesis of all that and agriculture and the agricultural system and how one impact, it really revolves around one thing, which is these family farms. And the aha moment for me was that that is the backbone of the food and agricultural system globally, right? No matter where you go, it's family farms that produce the preponderance of our uh, nutrition in the world. So if I'm starting a business and if I'm going to make a huge impact in that business, it has to be focused on helping these small business owners. Like that is what I'm passionate about. I I love seed genetics and I love breeding and I love ag tech and I love data science, but really it's about those farmers. And that was the epiphany in 2014. We want to start a business that creates a network of these small business owners, aggregate information, create analytics create transparency and power for the farmers, and then ultimately uh, develop a ways of business to monetize that, but in a way that benefits those same customers. Can you walk us through kind of the core experience and what you do? And, uh, you know, you talk about seed and all these other things. Tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, so our technology is really built to impact the entire farming cycle. So so the way the experience works is a farmer comes into FBN.com And essentially on FBN.com, they can deal with every part of the farming cycle. That includes planning, 
So when they're thinking about what crops am I going to plant, in what ratio, what seed genetics should I use, what seed genetics should I use by soil type, we have deep analytics, we have machine learning to help farmers make those decisions because this is making decisions about something like genetics within a biological system like a farm that also has variables like weather. But there are some constant variables like the soil type and others that you can actually factor in to make a, a risk-adjusted data science-driven decision that's better. So you select the right seed, you select the right population of seed. So you know that's, that's a part of the, the farming cycle is the planning, but then you have a whole bunch of other things you have to do. You have to finance your operation so that you can farm. You have to insure it. You have to purchase the inputs you need to grow your crops or, or raise your livestock. On FBN.com, you can do all of those things. And you can do all of those things in a transparent and data-driven way as a farmer. So whether it's all the way in the planning phase or whether it's in the financing or the input purchasing or the planting or the harvesting or the selling of your crop or marketing of your crop, FBN.com is there to support you, right? And our, our team is there to support you. Uh, the experience on the website is analytical. But we're also building, as, as you consume the services, if you're a farmer, features like being able to be approved for a, a loan for your farm in 10 minutes. You can do that on FPN.com. Buy uh, $100,000 worth of inputs, feed or cam or other things you need and have them delivered directly to your farm through our logistics and supply chain network. These are experiences that are very new in the ag sector that we have brought to bear. One of the things I loved when I was learning all about your business um, over the last many years now is how actually open to innovation and adoption of new technology farmers are. And I think maybe to somebody who's not a farmer, you would assume, oh, technology may be something that they're a bit more averse to. Tell us why and why that was such an aha moment for you. Well, you know, it's interesting for me, it wasn't an aha moment because I actually, through my entire life, had taken the time to go to rural America and understand how farming business and small business owners in this world operate. So it, it, ironically, the, the unfortunate stereotype that a farmer wouldn't adopt technology or whatever, it comes from people making assumptions. Ironically, in many cases, those are people in the agricultural industry who say, well, a farmer will only buy local. A farmer won't buy online. Uh, they're not interested in data and network transparency. I say, why not? Every other business owner is interested in it. And this is a economic decision, right? And certainly doing things locally or doing things the way you've done them, there's value in that too. But there's no reason why a farmer wouldn't consider new innovation, consider new options if they create efficiency, convenience, cost savings in their business, right? So actually, it wasn't a moment for me. It was actually pretty obvious because the ironic thing was when we started, 100% of people in the ag industry, executives in the industry and others said, well, that'll never work because farmers won't do business with uh, an online company or a so-called online company. We actually have a lot of people uh, working for us in rural America, so it's not a true description of us, but that was the assumption. Uh, they wouldn't be interested in a network of shared information. They're not going to purchase inputs online. They'll get their financing from a local bank instead of from you uh, online. And we've disproven all of that over the years. And it's really by saying, like, look, we're not going to stereotype and say we're, we're going to instead treat farming as an innovative small business and actually assume the opposite, which is that people are going to be interested in these things, just like a restaurant owner is or anybody else. I don't know why farmers are any different, and we've discovered they're not. Tell us about your go-to-market strategy. How did you think about getting started? And obviously, you had a really good understanding of farmers and their businesses and who they were and what they're. But how did you think about what was the original tipping point to try to go and actually capture the market? 
Well, we, we, when we first launched, you know, eight years ago, all we had was our, our data analytics product. And, and frankly, it had no data in it, meaning that there was no value to a farmer on day one because we had nothing there other than some apps and things they could use. So we had a cold start problem, as you always do on these things. And, and what you have to do is you have to get through that with some grittiness. So I told my early team, we're going to go to rural America. I knew a lot of farmers in Illinois. We knew people in Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, and we literally went around everywhere and we showed them the product one at a time. And, and we asked for their advocacy. We said, look, if you think a shared network of farmers and the things that we could do with this platform for you have value, then share it with your friends. Because the places we go, a state of Iowa has 70,000 farms. And so we go to a county, there, there might be 1,000 potential customers in that county, right? Just one county. So if we get an advocate, if we get somebody who believes and wants to spread the word, that can really help. So ironically, that cold start problem is overcome through really grittiness and in many cases, just doing the on the ground work kind of the old school way. Now, once that starts to snowball and you get more and more people signing up, not only signing up with contributing data, you create more awareness of your company broadly, we can use purely digital strategies to, to get customers on board. So. Uh, we spend a lot of money making sure that uh, we develop very proprietary content that's technical. It's about farming, but also content that's uh, about the markets, about things that'll be of interest that drives a lot of attention to, again, FPN.com. We made it free to become a member. We used to have a membership, but we've taken all the friction out of that. So you can get in there, you can use all our tools, you can consume the information all for free. You just have to participate in, in our community. So all of those things together is, is how you got there, but, but it was really, it starts with some grittiness. Like you, you can't just put a website out there and assume everybody's going to sign up for, for what you're doing. Uh, and I think that I see that a lot, actually. I, I invest personally in early stage companies, not in ag, but in health tech and ed tech. And I, I see that a lot. People think that, well, I built it. Why isn't everybody here? Well, it's because you got to do some work to make sure people are aware and You've talked a lot about the challenge of building up the supply side of a marketplace. What makes that challenging and how did you overcome that part of the business? Well, when we decided to monetize through inputs, okay, so chem, seed, now we have livestock, nutrition and feed, those kinds of things. We went to the industry and said, well, we've got this online platform. Do you want to supply us with seed? And their answer was no way because we have retailers and cooperatives and others that were beholden to in our channel and selling through your platform uh, would make them upset. Uh, very old school industry, uh, a lot of sort of uh, cooperation, I'll, I'll call it, between those parties uh, without us being in, at, the, at the table, so to speak. So, so on the supply side, we actually didn't really have supply. We had to go find people who'd be willing to sell to us, sort of third party. What that eventually evolved to was an IP strategy, which we, we've emerged to today, where we actually at FPN invest, we've invested over $100 million in research and development. And we have our own products that we sell. We also sell some third party, but even to this day, most of the major agricultural businesses do refuse to do business with us, despite our scale, despite, and so we do it ourselves. So that's how we got the supply side of the market. Again, through grit and problem solving, uh, and ultimately through investment, because you know, it, it, you can't run a marketplace where you have a couple of suppliers and they won't cooperate with you and you have millions of farmers. That's not a marketplace at all. It's a storefront. And we want to run a storefront, but one that is very efficient and one that can bring cost savings to farmers. We have to invest in that IP, that supply chain, so we're not beholden to supply. 
There's other offerings like financial services, for example, where you can operate more like a true marketplace because there's a lot more suppliers of capital, right? And those capital providers want to potentially offer a loan to a farmer and they're looking for a conduit and that's where we come in. And so on the certain of our products, it operates like a marketplace and the supply is easier to come by. On our physical products, it was a multi-year process of investment in IP and dealing with the curveballs the industry threw at us. As you look at the future of farming and food tech and agriculture, what would you say is the one or two most important things that you see happening in a decade? I see a number of things happening. So one is autonomy. I do think that farmers in general in row crops are already extremely efficient. If you go to a a Midwest farm that's growing corn or soybeans or, or a row crop, you can have multi-thousand acres and they'll have a couple of people running that entire operation already. So you might say, well, then what's the value of autonomy? Well, the value of autonomy is that you can potentially change the way machinery looks. Uh, you could potentially reduce the size and the impact of machinery while being able to operate and plant that field, harvest that field, spray that field in a way that's even more efficient uh, than the current way, which is where you buy huge equipment, you run it very slowly, you know, over parcels of land. This is for row crops. So I, I actually think autonomy will allow for changes in, in both equipment and practices that could transform row crops. That combined with continued improvement in things like genetics, crop protection, you know, dealing with weeds, pests, disease, those are things that are going to transform the industry. The other thing that's going to transform the industry is uh, people's focus on environmental impact. So anything that the, the biggest environmental impact by far is, is fertilizer and uh, innovations that can make a farmer more efficient in their fertilizer use are going to absolutely uh, be of interest. The final thing is I, I think there are segments of the agricultural market, specific types of crops where um, you're going to move away from laborious models. So, so where farm labor exists today is really in things like produce. Uh, orchard crops. And I think a lot of produce actually could go indoors. Uh, And that investment is being made. Protein, like the things you're growing for feed, for livestock, or for fuel, that's not going to go indoors, in my opinion. But lettuce could go indoors. It is going indoors. All the greens, tomatoes. I'm actually on the board of a a vegetable seed breeding company that um, I've been involved with for a long time that's spectacular at doing these things. Uh, They do the seed breeding for indoor environments. So I think those are the trends. Uh, Some of them are just in niches of agriculture and some of them are broad-based. I think autonomy is everywhere. If you look at some of these things where parts of the ag market are going indoors, a lot of it is related to autonomy. So I think those are the things you're going to see 10 years from now. Uh, Less labor um, needs, more autonomy, uh, and uh, a, a myriad of efficiency gains related to, again, how... The crops are cultivated, but also related to environmental impact. One thing I'm really proud uh, of you for from afar um, is, you know, I think you launched Gradable to bring environmental transparency to the grain industry. Can you just give us a little bit more of your thinking on the role of sustainability in your business and any other predictions around what we may see that could really help our planet? Yeah, and, and you're going to find this uh, to be a little bit contrary to what you might expect here. Uh, but uh, let, let me give you a few numbers here real quick to start with. Okay, so, so the first problem of ESG in food and agriculture by a wide margin 
should be nutrition for the human population. Environmental impacts are important. As you know, they're important to us through gradable.com. But number one, there are still 50 million plus people in the U.S. on this, in the United States on the SNAP food assistance program, of which 14, 15 million are children. So when I hear people say like, oh, we should only produce organic and we should not use pesticides or herbicides or we should get away from livestock, these commentaries, I, I don't think people who make these comments sometimes really understand the impact that if that happened, the impact that would have on people who spend 30, 40, 50% of their budget on food. And, and our fellow Americans with this food inflation are experiencing that right now. FBN's number one priority is food security, okay? Making food efficient, helping our farmers to be profitable, making food efficiently. That's why we support the practice of spraying. We support livestock and ranching because that's the low cost way to do things right now. Now, as new innovations come in, Okay, if there are really great indoor companies that can take certain parts of the ag production chain indoors, like in produce, I think that's a tremendous outcome and I think that could happen. Okay, but I don't see a world where you can uh, combat food security, food inflation, make sure people are fed, living in a bubble. And I think that a lot of the comments that I see live in a bubble. Now, for a long time at FBN, We've had this view forever, by the way. Like our first business was we're, we're in the business of selling crop protection and chem. And uh, we are in livestock and we support our ranchers. And the reason is because uh, they're doing more with less, actually. They, they are very efficient in the way that they produce food in a low-cost way. And we want to help them do that. A lot of them also are moving towards regenerative practices. They're moving towards ways of using less fertilizer. They're using towards no-till, whatever. We want to incent rather than use a stick. So our view uh, is something we're very proud of is very much the opposite of a lot of what you hear in Silicon Valley around sustainability. Yet we believe we've got the right ESG message here, which revolves first around people and weaves in those environmental incentives that are very important. Hey, Mola, I'm so happy you said that, actually, which is um, we have to make sure we first take care of the people on the planet. And I actually haven't had anybody say that so clearly in the food tech and future food. So thank you so much for bringing up, obviously, the pretty critical point there. Well, well Alexa, it's, it's unpopular. Um, you know, we, we get the question all the time. Oh, well, you're in the chem business. I said, if you did not have, you, you have 18, 20% food inflation right now. If farmers did not spray their crops this year, it would be like 35%. Okay. Oh, uh, you're supporting uh, livestock and ranchers. Well, if you didn't have efficient meat production and protein production from livestock and ranches, Food inflation would be probably 150%. Wow. It is not realistic. Now, on the other hand, there are innovations that you see, like I, I mentioned on indoor, which I think are great. If all lettuce can be taken indoors, that would be wonderful. We wouldn't need to plant lettuce outdoors anymore. Tomatoes. There's a whole category of food that probably can go indoors. There's a whole category that absolutely cannot and never will physically. Um, and... So I think at the end of the day, when we start a company and, and people want to label, and you've heard a lot about ESG and greenwashing, FBN refuses to, to do that. Uh, we're proud of the businesses that we're in. We're proud of the mission that we have. Uh, and we're going to do it in a real way. Now, gradable, like you mentioned, I will mention, that is built to be real. We're not running around selling carbon credits or trying to you know, convince the marketing arm of some company to buy carbon credits from us. We're trying to get real companies to pay real premiums to farmers for their practices. 
Yeah, and I think that's possible because you know a five cent premium on your corn it could be worth a lot of money, and if you can prove your low fertilizer or no till, then there are people who may be willing to pay that. We actually have some partners who are uh, working with those types of strategies. So, so that's a market based approach to this. That's what we got to take. But to be honest with you, that's been an unpopular opinion. People would much rather hear about plant based protein or uh, indoor ag or whatever the case is. FPN has a complete opposite approach on that. However, we believe we have a better ESG approach and one that, again, prioritizes people uh, as high or higher than the uh, just the environmental impacts of what happens. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. You know, you were a partner at Kleiner Perkins for nearly seven years uh, before starting FBN. So you're a star investor, become founder. What was the biggest surprise? Like what, again, you worked with thousands of founders, I'm sure, uh, over that span. What was the biggest surprise? What was the thing that you were like, wow, I really didn't appreciate this part of the job? Well, I had been a founder before I joined Kleiner Perkins. I joined Kleiner 14 and a half years ago, uh, where it's a different world, okay? Back then, uh, early stage investing, there were no safe notes or seed rounds. Were like, Yeah, wow. none of it. <laughs> that, that world was very different. And all the partners I worked for, they retired or, or moved on or or bought sports teams or something. And um, so it was a different world that I uh, was brought up in as an, as an entrepreneur, but then also as an investor. So here is what was surprising to me when I started a company in 2014. I, I'm not super old, I'm 44, but I started this business when I was like 35 or 36. I, I felt out of touch in some ways. For the longest time when I was uh, younger as an entrepreneur, that, that was something that just never happened. Right. The, the, the investor was in charge. The investor said, you take my money, you're basically going to starve for 10 years and hope that you have a pile of gold at the end of it. Right. Whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you're a team member, you're a young engineer who joined the team early or whatever. I cannot begin to tell you how much that's changed for the better, where people appreciate the risks that uh, young people, but everyone's taking in a startup. That was transition for me in 2014, 2015, when I started that, how much the world had changed. Uh, the other thing that really hit me, and, and having been an investor and seen successes, I'd seen failures, is you don't plan for the issues related to your success. You always know what the failure scenarios look like. They're ugly and they're unpleasant and, and whatnot. I've never heard somebody say that, and it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, you, you don't realize the things that happen to you when you're successful, and you don't realize how people around you are going to change. Uh, their perceptions of you may change. Um or they may not, and they should change, meaning that they should have more respect for you versus uh, treating you poorly or treating you as if you're uh, a nobody or whatever. They, it, it's different in every case, but that's the one thing I didn't realize is if your company starts scaling and starts growing like crazy, do you have the right people around you? Uh, do they know how to scale themselves? Have they done it before? All the entrepreneurs I work with, this is the number one thing I tell them. It's like, fine, tell me the terms, tell me your traction, all this stuff. 
who is on your team and who are you surrounded by at an early stage? Because if you don't have people who have like done this and can grow with you, you could be a victim of your own success. What did your parents do that stood out that made you special or helped you get to this incredible, you know, many standard deviations, outlier of success? Can you tell us one thing that your parents did that you're replicating? I don't actually view myself as that successful. I view myself as a person who's taking uh, entrepreneurial risk and, you know, have had good fortune, uh, in some cases, good luck, I would say. Uh, Certainly, it was really good luck for me to wind up at Kleiner. I had a great boss there uh, named Ray Lane who recruited me there. And I guess if that had never happened, then I wouldn't be here. I mean, you know, that was luck. They used to hire like one person every three years back then. Um, I I don't think I was any more qualified than than others, but I got the job and that, that really, the network that created for me and everything that was unbelievable because I I didn't have any kind of network like that when I was younger. So I I don't really think um, of myself as any different than anybody else. The one thing I would say is my parents were were immigrants. My dad is an engineer himself, and he worked with farmers. He's an environmental engineer. It's part of how I got into ag. You know, I, I don't think you can actually be successful unless you're willing to. And I think people who, um, have a background in, or their families have a background in um, having less, uh, you know, or whatever, sometimes they're maybe more willing to take risks because you have less to lose. But you learn that it becomes innate for you. Like, I'm not afraid to take a risk and, and fail. I do that now in personal investing. I know my entrepreneurs may fail, and I'm proud of them sometimes if they do a great job, but maybe it just didn't work out. The process of learning and the process of failing and taking risk is as important as what the result is because. If you stick with that, then eventually you probably will be successful. It isn't really like, you know, your your, your standard deviations from the mean. You, you just have a way of thinking about it that's a little bit different. And that that's what I found with the most successful entrepreneurs. They usually have plenty of failures or uh, risks they've taken in their background that, uh, you know, others wouldn't have, right? Is there one habit or one thing that you do that you believe keeps you centered or in your optimal performance? What is it? Yeah, there's two things. One one I learned during COVID and one one that I feel uh, I hope is innate for a lot of people. But what I learned during COVID is about fitness and exercise. I, I actually didn't take any of that very seriously until COVID. And I suddenly I was actually more efficient, right? Doing things online and everything. I, I started dedicating myself to spending at least an hour, hour and a half a day to to fitness, no matter what. Doesn't matter. I'm going to do it, right? I'm not going to excuse myself because I'm busy that day or whatever the case is. So that was one thing that I learned recently that I think is a huge habit. And I, I don't know, it, it's maybe it's like a drug or something, but it helps me to uh, deal with ups and downs, whether it's in the company or in personal life or whatever. And then the second is my kids. So I, I have a son uh, who was diagnosed with autism seven years ago. That's what got me interested in uh, health tech and ed tech. And his transformation has been just unbelievable to me. When I see him now, it's, I can hardly even tell he has autism anymore, but it wasn't like that seven or eight years ago. So right around the time we started this company. And, you know, uh, what I've also, as a discipline, dedicated myself to is spending enough time with the kids, not too much. By the way, I strongly believe you can spend too much time with your kids, but enough, right? In the morning, getting them ready for school or taking them to school. I used to hear this from people before I had kids, and I was like, oh, well, what difference does that make? You drove them to school. It makes like a huge difference. And it's actually in some ways doing that every day is more valuable than spending 10 hours with them playing catch in the park, right? Not that that's not important, but 
it's that consistency and what you can't do is be volatile. Kid, kids can deal with someone who is a high strung or low key or whatever, as long as it's consistent, right? It's not a, a new habit or a new mood every day. And that's the other discipline that I've tried to bring from a family perspective is that I want to be consistent in how I engage, right? I, I want to be predictable, uh, just, just like I am at work. I'm going to ask you very quickly three questions. You're going to just tell me the first thing that comes to mind. A favorite book that you've come back to or recommended many times. It can be any type of book, but a book you love. Well, I hate to give business books, but I, I like the whole good to great model. I, I, I actually, the first time I, I saw uh, Collins, uh, it was at a Coiner Perkins thing years ago. I thought I was going to hate it. I was like, it's like business school crap or whatever. I love it. Last few questions here. I want to know your favorite interview question that you like to ask people. My number one thing is where, where were you born? Where were you raised, I should say. Uh, I think it tells you as much or more about somebody than anything could. Last question is your biggest pinch me moment to date at FBN. The the moment you came home and told your family, like, I can't believe that just happened. What happened? The first time we, we raised a financing round that involved a public market shareholder, right? Uh, that was a big milestone. That was a few years ago, right? Public uh, shareholders uh, started investing in private companies. But it was something that really I felt like was a milestone. You know, it's a different kind of investor. Uh, they have a different bar, different level of scrutiny on things. You know, I, I'd been experienced raising venture capital, and, and we have tr- some tremendous uh, GV, uh, Google Ventures, Tomasic, some tremendous venture capital and growth investors. But the first time we got a major public market investor as an investor in the company, to me, that was a real milestone. Me and my CFO kind of looked at each other and say, wow, that's something we're proud of. I love it. Um, Emil, I wish I had honestly two more hours with you. Um, This has been an absolute pleasure and I'm so grateful for you joining us today. Everybody out there, if you want to learn more, you got to check out sbn.com and check out everything that Emil's built. Um, And you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alex Von Tobel. Emil, thank you sincerely so much. Thank you. 